Hey Ship Show listeners, this is your host Paul Reed. Welcome to 2015. It's been more than just a couple of weeks since our last episode, and I wanted to give you, our audience, some visibility into the reason behind that. For episode 53, the episode you're about to hear, we have a very special guest joining the crew, Catherine Daniels, or as many of you know her, Beer Ops on Twitter. She wrote a post last December called On Disconnecting. We'll definitely link to it in the show notes. And if you haven't read it, you should totally stop right now and read it. No, seriously, go read it. Don't worry, I'll wait. Read it? Good. We here at The Ship Show think making space and time for ourselves and our loved ones is really important, especially during the holidays. So we took Catherine's advice to heart and totally disconnected. That's why our first episode of 2015 is a bit late and in fact makes some reference to the holiday season because we taped it in December. But we're really excited about the topics and guests that we have lined up for the upcoming year, even technical ones, especially for Mr. Barry. So without further ado, on with the show. This episode of The Ship Show is sponsored by PagerDuty. PagerDuty decreases alerting noise for operations and developers and ensures the right engineers are alerted at the right time. PagerDuty helps you identify common problems, allowing you to make system improvements proactively so you don't have to be woken up at 2 a.m., something nobody likes. Ship Show listeners can sign up for a free 14-day trial at www.pagerduty.com slash theshipshow. To ship, of course. All right, it's that time again for the uh, holiday edition of the Ship Show, where we discuss release management, DevOps, build engineering, and everything in between. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build Eng on the Tweet Sphere and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. And who is with me tonight? This is EJ Sermola, E. Sermola on Twitter. This is uh, Sasha Dates at Sasha Dates Twitter. And this is J. Michael Magar at Son of Gar on Twitter. Do you know how much uh, stuff I got after you changed your tweet name? Like four people told me that I had the name wrong on the show notes, and I was like, "Yeah, he. It's not. It's his fault." He yeah, did. and some guy's squatting on my old name, which is his prerogative, but um, <laughs> he's getting all my uh, clicks now. So whatever. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, and we also have a special guest this evening. Many of you know her, Catherine Daniels, also known as Beer Ops on the Twitter sphere. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well this evening. Good. Complained about so far. Yeah. Well, we are going to be talking about DevOps career growth and development in the main segment and um, you know it's been five years in of DevOps there's a big we always talk about recruiters we actually did an episode on recruiting so that's always a topic that is front of mind and we're going to be talking about strategies if you're uh, one of those DevOps engineers since we've had to all change our names now of our our jobs uh, how you can keep on top of the fast-moving industry that we're all in Uh, but first up of course news and views as we always do DockerCon was happening this week I guess in Amsterdam and there were a couple of interesting Interesting announcements out of DockerCon. A couple of the main ones, Docker Hub Enterprise, uh, which you'd sort of expect, kind of reminds me of GitHub Enterprise, actually. And it has 
enterprise-esque features. It sounds like it's on-prem, basically, uh, repository stuff. But then also uh, they announced uh, orchestration for multi-container applications. Did you guys see any buzz on the tweets fair about DockerCon? Not, not one. <laughs> <laughs> not one? Really? No. It's funny. I saw, I saw, I mean, I, I, a few people were over there, and so I was hearing that. I saw a lot of noise and a lot of posts of slides, but I'm still just sort of, I, I feel like I'm watching a tennis match, and at this point, like, I am, I'm waiting to see the winner fall out, and then who's, we'll probably pull the trigger. Who's playing? I don't know. I Between Docker, CoreOS, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting, because there's so much Docker, Docker, Docker. People are talking about it, and obviously, you hear a lot about it when there's conferences going on that are exactly related to it, but it, it's uh, it's interesting to see there's, you know, what you were saying, EJ, about the kind of CoreOS weirdness, and the whole, uh, there was a joke, I guess it was the last episode on microservices Seth was talking about, uh, them still finding their business model, <laughs> and that Amazon has sort of eaten that lunch, or at least trying to eat that lunch. It's kind of interesting. Next up, uh, this is actually uh, probably a week a week or so old, a couple weeks old, uh, but it was huge splash in the, the tweet sphere. A post from uh, Tiffany Zhang, uh, we'll link to it in the show notes, a list of top internship offers. And it was very interesting. Did your Twitter streams light up with discussions about this? I did see that going around a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Did it surprise you? I, I was kind of surprised by some of the numbers. I mean, I'm assuming, did anyone find out if those were pre- or post-tax numbers? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I know I've heard some you know, some friends that work at Google a lot of times like when they do bonuses and things they are actually post-taxed so I mean if these were post-taxed I think they may even be a little more insane but I, I don't know I think people were like saying if you actually calculate this out like interns are making $100,000 a year and I actually what? had a couple really were those actual interns or like test model interns or something well I, I mean I don't know I, I totally believe the what was the Facebook in this list I'm pretty yeah it's 6800 a month for returning oh if you calculate the housing thing. That's right. I ran through the math on some of these, and they looked like somewhere between ninety and hundred thousand dollars a pop. And then um, I didn't even calculate in the housing. Yeah, and sure. So that sort of like bumps it a little bit higher, but. I... I don't know. It depends on who you saw who you get for an intern. Like we've seen a bunch of really stellar people bubble across our workspace at, at Rapid Seven, and for sure, some of them I wish they were still there, and some we still were able to keep that are fantastic. And I would imagine that if we gave out internships that were unpaid or very low paid, like I don't know if we would have been able to see or land the people that we we have, you know, so... Right. Well, I think one of the things that I found really interesting about in the discussions I had on Twitter about this particular image that was going around is I think a lot of people were saying, well, I never made that much as an intern, and and I certainly didn't uh, when I was interning, but I think the model has actually changed a little bit. If you look at how much it costs to do recruiting of quality candidates, they're basically shifting that cost to, if we pay a lot to have interns, it's like a very low-risk way to get a pipeline of candidates that if they're horrible and a lot of times it's hard to tell in an interview process if someone is just kind of putting on a show and and I've certainly I remember someone that uh, you know we, we interviewed and, and he talked and talked and talked and we ended up doing literally like over two days I think something like 12 or 16 hours of interviews ended up hiring him and he didn't know what a branch was it turned <laughs> out right I mean it was wow. that bad and so the thing is over the course of three months you will actually know who is full of bull 
it and who's not. How do you and manage then, to let people know that with Google these days? I mean, yeah, Jesus. Not Christ. only that, but you have to be stupid. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's the thing. I think it's possible I, to like, you know, keep that kind of thing to yourself and go Google it later. Yeah. What's a branch? That's a little scary. But yeah, but I mean, that that's the thing though. I, I think the model, you know, people are saying, well, it's internship offers. I I think it's that what they're actually saying. It's basically glorified hiring. You know, they are interns, yes, but um, I think just the market is so crazy that people were thinking about it wrong. And then, of course, housing in the Bay Area is like cray-cray, so that's why those numbers are all weird. I think the numbers are definitely high just based on the competitive nature of, I think, some of these companies in the Valley and, and trying to get top talent out of school. Yeah. I can tell you yep. that some companies don't have to pay their interns still, but that's a cachet thing, too. Yeah. Well, interesting numbers in any event. Uh, as I said earlier, I no, I didn't get paid this much as an intern, but it doesn't. these numbers don't surprise me, honestly. Yeah, I barely made rent as an intern. <laughs> Uh, next up, we have a post. Mike, you pointed us at this. This is uh, from Dave Fartley, uh, continuous delivery book fame, about effective acceptance testing. This is a pretty chunky post, but it's an important subject. Walk us through it, Mike. Yeah, yeah. This tends to be a rant I tend to give every time I go someplace. Um, <laughs> on, and so when I was reading, first of all, the continuous delivery book, and this is really kind of parts of the continuous delivery book on acceptance testing, mm-hmm. I felt it was too important not to share. But, you know, there's a, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, and there's some, but there's some good tidbits like I think the point he raises about creating a DSL for your testing I think is lost on a lot of people and then there's a lot of elements about creating tests that are isolated and repeatable and reliable at acceptance test level I think that's extremely important a lot of times you'll get into this trap where you create tests that are assuming that the previous tests have run and um, that's extremely you know extremely dangerous to an organization so yeah well and it's even worse when you have those tests that are like the yellow or orange tests in, in continuous integration and people start ignoring them or they maybe they break the build and people are like, well, you know, just, uh, yeah, the build's been broken for two weeks, it's fine, because we know those three tests are always flaky, uh, and then it's the fourth test that screws you, that you, yeah. nobody notices, because they're in this mode of ignoring it, uh, yeah, and I think that's, yeah. The other point he raises in, in this, and I think that the, one of the most important parts is the fact that most people put so much stock in acceptance tests, and he doesn't directly call this out, but I found it effective to do pushing the test down, so if you can test something outside of an acceptance test, in an integration test, or even a unit test, then do it there. You should minimize the whole testing and acceptance test because they're so expensive they're so right. flaky and, and this is actually the whole testing triangle which like I said I think this is totally worth another whole uh, segment oh, what's the testing triangle I know nothing about said triangle so the testing triangle is essentially you have at the bottom unit tests in the middle you have component tests or integration tests and the top you have acceptance tests and the idea is that you want to have as many tests as possible be a unit tests because they're fast they're repeatable and they're stable acceptance tests are slow and unreliable and they tend to um, be uh, flaky so mm-hmm. whenever possible, you want to push a test condition down to the bottom of that pyramid. So you want to test as much as possible in a unit test because they're fast. I love it. I love it. Is this the general consensus in the tech community, or is this just sort of what you guys do? Or I would say this is the general consensus in the tech community. I mean, you Google testing tri- testing pyramid, testing triangle, and you'll find a lot. There's a lot, a lot of people talking about it. I mean, I think Martin Fowler has it all over. So mm-hmm. if it's on Martin Fowler's Blicky, then it's... it's a- <laughs> Well, this is definitely something uh, it'd be interesting because, you know, Yusuf is doing uh, engineering stuff now. Yeah, yeah. We should circle back on this. Yeah, no, definitely we should. But it's interesting, right? This is, again, people talk, uh, the reason I, I think this is really important, people talk a lot about continuous delivery, but there's that little bit, if you don't actually talk about quality at all, then great, you're shipping quickly. Good job. Uh, yeah. So you need to actually 
account for that somewhere in the continuous delivery pipeline. I, I would argue that this is probably the hardest, testing and, and acceptance testing is probably the hardest part of continuous delivery. I mean, yeah. everyone focuses on deployment automation and, and, and uh, Chef or Puppet, but I think this ends up being the one thing that prevents people from actually doing true continuous delivery. Yeah, yeah, and as often too, if you do focused in investment in the release engineering side of things, which you typically have to do to quote unquote build the pipeline, but right. it's one of the things, it's like the second thing that companies have not invested for a long time in enough in is the quality, the QA part, and that's the thing that then screws them after they get the pipeline stuff figured out. Oh yeah. yeah super important. Last up tonight, Post, it's actually a few months old, but it's still pretty interesting building Vim from 1993 today. I actually saw this in a tweet, which I don't remember where now, but uh, it was just saying building Vim from 1993 today is actually easier than building or getting a Rails app running. The Post takes us through building Vim version 1.22, which was released in 1992, and what the person had to do to do that. It's well, an I interesting. At that and yeah. I was like, you know that, but the difference is, is that the stuff that it uses to build itself hasn't changed since then, and the stuff that we're That's using cool. today is changing all the time. So you have to take that into account when making decisions. If people want to develop with something that's been stable for ten years, then they should. Yeah, I, that's well, so, their first thing that they want to do. Well, so first of all, it's funny. Stuff wasn't totally stable. He actually did have to change a bunch of things, and and he, the post walks through things he had to change. Like it's kind of funny. What was the, oh uh. Some stuff from TermCap, which is like super low level and, and old school. He had to change that. So it actually, I, I love posts like this because I'm a sucker for like old school type things. You know, people are compiling really old things. But and this is also the the funny thing is like he got it all compiled and then the first thing when he ran it, it blew up immediately. So we've all had that experience too. But I, I think the point that he's making is I think a lot of times it's not just a stability argument. It's a what you're familiar with. Like if I tried to get a Rails app running it would be a lot of pulling hair and gnashing of teeth, I think, if you're not in sort of the Rails space. Similarly, there's an interesting question, like, could you get a Rails app that you'd written, what, two years ago to run? But you can get a, a C app from 20 years ago to run. And to your point, Sasha, about things changing a lot, uh, sometimes I wonder if that's something we've stopped caring about in certain parts of the industry. Like, will we be able to easily get Node apps up and running also, uh, in five years? we're missing the difference between compiled and interpreted languages, too. So maybe he should try that with two different com two different interpreted languages. Yeah, that's a good... Because, I mean, compilers really make a separate space to do everything, to put everything together, and then you run it in a container yeah. of some kind, whereas uh, a lot of this stuff doesn't get isolated in the same way. Well, isn't it interesting that that was one of the big things about Go? You know, when it, you compile it, then it packages it kind of all together. So it has the mentality that a compiled language like this has. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of interesting, especially if you like picking up really old, old uh, packages. I don't really give a shit about Ruby on Rails or Rails apps to be, you know, but I don't like people going, well, you can do this thing and it's much easier than doing this other thing that I think is dumb. Oh, well, I don't, I, I don't know that, I don't know that he's necessarily saying that he thinks it's dumb. It, the way I read it was just that people, I think, tend to assume, uh, you know, there's this constant sort of people that are new to the industry assume the stuff they're working with right now is super easy and super simple and the best thing ever. Anybody and ever said that about Ruby? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an easy language to write compared to other languages, but trying to get anything to run in an interpreted environment can be very difficult, depending on you know how you how well it's isolated when it installs and things. Yeah, I think the punchline to this whole news and view item, Sasha, is that you're imminently reasonable, and some people aren't reasonable, and that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, next up, we're going to be talking DevOps and career growth in the DevOps space. Is it different than regular uh, career growth? We're going to talk about it next up here on The Ship Show.
All right, welcome back to the ship show. So for our main segment tonight, DevOps career growth. What does what does that mean, uh, and is it different than other types of career growth that uh, we deal with in the industry? Uh, just because DevOps is so nascent. Now, this is a topic, uh, Catherine, you brought up to discuss because it is sort of kind of interesting. We talk, uh, we we don't actually talk too much about it in conferences and things like that, do we? No, not that I've heard so far. And this is something that's been interesting to me, not only because of the you know five-year anniversary of DevOps days and the retrospective that went along with that that happened a couple months ago, mm-hmm. uh, but also you know thinking about my own career development. This, this field is only five years old. I don't know what I'm going to be doing five years from now. What is the field going to be doing five years mm-hmm. from now? I think there's a lot of interesting stuff to think about there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The devoping to end all DevOps. <laughs> well, so, you know, that is that, that has sort of been the eternal problem, I think, in the technology industry. It's, it's really hard to know, you know, where to go and where to focus sort of your energy and learning and all of that just because it's hard to predict necessarily where the industry, I mean, if you were going to be sort of looking at now, it'd be like, well, you should just learn all about Docker and that's it, right? Or, or you know, or microservices and that's it. What are some strategies you think that you can sort of future-proof your own career since we have imperfect information about what the future is going to be like? What is the base job for DevOps? I mean, that's where I would start. What do you mean, base base job? Uh, what are we talking about when we say DevOps career growth? When Paul says the base, or, or I, I feel like that's that's learning and everything you can about lean. I mean, that hasn't gone anywhere, and that's that's still going to be relevant even if DevOps dies tomorrow, right? So at a minimum, you should you should learn everything you can about lean. Lean what? Deming, Toyota, flow systems, flow based systems. Yeah, I mean, there is there is a a lot, way too much. Um, what is yeah. the base job that we're talking about, though, too? Because if we're talking about systems administration, uh, there's generally no career path for that uh, as far as like college goes and things. So we're looking at a much bigger a, a much bigger question here than just how do we go forward, but how do we even start? Education is uh, or like if we're talking about system administration as a baseline, that was one of the p- parts. things that I brought up was, you know, how do we train quote-unquote DevOps? You know, there's hacker school and those similar programs for people who want to become developers, but there's nothing similar for people who want to become system administrators, who want to become operations. Who want to grow up to be systems? Nobody does, and I've I've been talking about this with a lot of people. People only get into this accidentally. How can we get somebody to, on purpose, want to be a sysadmin? I don't know. Should they want to be a sysadmin? That's actually a really interesting point, because I think if you look at a lot of the operations side of, of DevOps and a lot of the skills there that are configuration management, increasingly we see source control. You have to know how to use that and, and talk about it conversantly. Maybe we need to um, those are what we think of as this stuff. Instead of saying sysadmin, we need to look at it as infrastructure architecture or something like that. Right. Well, so that's that, that was my point is that if you look at like a lot of the release engineering type stuff that goes into the DevOps world, whether it be packaging or orchestration or whatever, what I find interesting is that you don't go to school to be a release engineer either. And and most of the release engineers yes, that I interview... at least is tied to that in a way that systems is not neither or infrastructure for the most part. Although it's becoming that way with cloud infrastructure now. 
Right, but so what what I'm saying is though, I, I think it's very interesting that uh, there is a segment of sort of the DevOps population that, like you were saying, you don't go to school to be a sysmin, you don't go to school to be a release engineer, you don't necessarily go to school to be like... Most sysadmins didn't start out a, a software developer though either, or any of those things. Most of us who are in sysadmins administration don't have education in computer science stuff at all. Yeah. That's well, so... A, that's a, that's a, I can, I say I'm comfortable making that sweeping statement. So I'm the weird one here with a CS degree then. Yes, you might be. <laughs> I have a CS degree. High five. Yes, yeah, but hi. you're a release engineer, and I just said that. So That's people true. who get into systems administration, most of us get into it by accident and don't start out with computer science focus, but with other stuff. I was a, I was a lit major that yeah, fell yeah. for this stuff because it was maybe, easy. Maybe Sasha and I are the only two that have seen this. Like Some of the best sysadmins yeah. I saw, they were like geology majors or classical <laughs> guitar majors. Like they, they did this other stuff in school, but had a burning passion for system administration. So sorry, we're sort of like philosophy degree. Yeah, we're sort of like we're sort of like off on a tangent now, but or, no, I don't think so. And the other thing too is that a lot of people didn't finish college either. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. It seems like we are kind of off in the weeds talking about this, but what is interesting about that is to, to Sasha's point, like if we're talking about career growth, I would ask and I'd ask Sasha cuz I got a computer science degree. So what skills would you teach in in a curriculum if you went to get a degree in like system administration or systems or infrastructure engineering or any of those things, which I think are all very important, but I like wh I'd how teach would that be trade different? skills a lot of yeah. it. Like yeah. I would I would do trade school skills first, not algorithms and logic and things because that's great for some parts of computer science stuff, but for the most part, it doesn't help you until you start actually writing software. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure somebody like Sasha or I, the last time we had to do like a bubble sort or even know the best sorting algorithm. <laughs> yeah, so, and the thing is too, and, and the other side of this that we have to look at is getting people to understand when they do job postings that you don't get somebody who knows everything in the world just because they say DevOps. You know, like some people think that DevOps means you can program and like are a super sysadmin all at the same time, and those people exist, but generally they're from, you know, they've got like 20 years of experience and have been doing things forever. But honestly, like I would be, I would focus it on first with trade type things and teaching people how to understand systems. And then I would start focusing on cloud infrastructure and scaling and all of those things that like off school is trying to teach. And I would start to refocus the way people call the way people label stuff instead of sysadmining because that's a definitely a part of it but more as um, infrastructure architecture or um, I'm trying to think of something that can include both like cloud and data center type stuff and the ability to like so let me play devil's advocate here um, because it sounds to me uh, and I'm pretty sure you're not saying this but it sounds to me like you're saying well we could write up a, a certification program where if you learn those things you could get your little DevOps certificate no, no I didn't say that because I don't no, think no, no, that I, any of this has I'm... anything to do with DevOps at all Okay, good. Interesting clarification. Okay. But if yeah. we're talking about sysadmins and people who are working in this in the infrastructure space, which is a lot of what people refer to as DevOps, then you know, and it really depends on if we're talking about what is DevOps or are we talking about how are sysadmins going to get a job path? So, do you think that that is actually the thing that uh, complicates this whole discussion because we're talking about? I mean, the question was posed as DevOps career growth, but it's hard to talk about what that actually means because then we have to define DevOps and it means so many different things. And depending, right. I mean, Mike, you said lean, right? Which it is, right? But then it's becoming a you know an expert in lean is is right. How, yeah, so how does that directly connect to my day? You know, my daily life at work. So one one interpretation of, of a DevOps career growth is is getting engineers to really understand the op, how to operationalize 
their applications mm-hmm. and understand how it runs in production because I ha- I've dealt with that. It's a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For, or even just testing their application. And then from an operation standpoint, getting them to use like some of the tools that DevOps talks about all the time. like Source control. Source control, yeah. Let's, just one. Um, and then, you know, configuration management tools. I mean, that is, I guess, currently the definition of, I think, a DevOps career path. So let, me, so let me ask this. You know, we talk a lot about full-stack developers. You hear that a lot. That's the, the holy grail, right? We want full-stack stack developers that know everything from the, the browser to the kernel on the server side, what's going on. And what I think is interesting about that is people talk about those as unicorns, and I'm not so sure that those people exist at all. But I'm curious, like... Let's assume they do. Like, what is a full-stack option? Well, you can call them generalists, too. I mean, there are generalists out there, but the only way to get really good at that kind of stuff is to live it. Like, a big part of what you're talking about is problem-solving and understanding how to fix things, and you can teach some of that in a book, but a lot of it's life. Right, but I mean, so what would the stack be, though, for for an ops engineer, do you think? If we were talking about, quote-unquote, full-stack ops engineer. What do you want, like, language examples, or...? No, no, what would this... So, I mean, because if you look at... You talk about full-stack developer... Right. A lot of them, a lot of that, it, it, it's sort of dependent on the job, right? But the talk about, oh, well, I want a front-end engineer that knows JavaScript and they need to be able to deploy things, so they need to know the, the back-end language and they need to know database stuff because our stuff's in the database and they need to know, right? So there's a list. We usually talk know. about the, the layers when we talk yeah. about that. Though. Yeah, so what was it? Is it different for an ops engineer? Like, does it no, ops- it's actually more relevant to ops engineers than it is, I think, to software engineers because software engineers don't usually know much besides their language and their their uh, yeah. Okay, but does that mean then we, as ops engineers, all have to know JavaScript? I hope not. Yes. Yeah. I didn't right. sign <laughs> yeah, probably. No, when they talk probably... about full stack, they don't actually talk about knowing how to write code. I don't think. I think it's understanding the different integration layers of your stuff and how it all relates together, and not necessarily just how the app runs. So, like a lot of when you talk about full stack software engineers, they want those because a lot of times people can write code but don't know anything about how it works in real life. Uh, so maybe for the operations side of things, it, it would include stuff like how does you know the network configuration work? How does you know what you have set up in the data center or in your fancy cloud somewhere? How is that going to affect the the operability of of your application? Which is, I mean, we still have network engineers. We still have you know those kind of very specialized people. But is that a sort of thing that's going to get more generalized into maybe like a full stack? operations person. I think that we'll always have specialized help like that because there are just some things that there are just some things that you know people need to know that you can't know if you know every if you know a little bit of everything you can't know a lot of stuff about one thing unless you're you know 50 <laughs> and those people exist but it's tough and a lot of what we do learn as generalists happen over time as things break and we figure out why. I think that's the big that's the big kicker for having like formal career growth for a lot of this stuff is that your best bet when when you I don't even know how to like express this. But a, a lot of Use people who are successful at becoming uh, senior, whatever, full stacks uh, are constantly looking for new and different work and won't take work with stuff that they already know how to do and things like that. So that's part of the career growth thing too is that you need to really be in charge of your own stuff. Like you want to know how to do things and you need to want to learn. And a lot of full stacks and generalists and things like that are that way because they don't want to do something they already know how to do. Yeah, I, I really like that point, Sasha, about diversity of experience. I mean, you're not going to learn a variety of different application how to how to manage a variety of different applications in production if you're in one enterprise for 
you know, 15 years. I mean, you're going to learn how that one company, that one enterprise is deploys their one type of applications, which is likely very niche. On the other hand, if you've been writing Java apps for that company for, you know, 10 or 15 years, then you at least do understand that particular stack. It's very likely that either you're really checked out and don't have to work, or you've gotten a really good understanding of all the integration points for the applications and things like that. So it's right. still possible, but it's a different kind of full stack, and it may or may not translate. Right. So flipping back to what we're calling like the DevOps full stack thing, like maybe Mike and Sasha has seen this, but some of the people on my team, they've written applications. So one of our things to manage our Cassandra ring was written in Node.js by somebody on our team. And I don't know if that necessarily means that you're full stack because you've written Node.js and know how to operate on Cassandra. Fuller stack, at least. Fuller stack, yeah. I don't know. It's just somebody, somebody had a lot of time and a lot of energy and saw this thing and you know, filled the gap. Um, well, most of us who are sysadmin-based or, or operations-based do get interested in writing stuff eventually, and it happens the other way around, too. All I'm saying is that it's really tough to formalize that kind of progression. Yeah, I, yeah I, Sasha, I think that's a really good point, calling out formalizing that progression in career growth. You know, what do you think about that, Catherine? I mean, that seems like the, the part that gets very difficult to encompass all of the details when you're trying to formalize it as a track, as a, as a, a track for growth. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I think a lot of what it could be depends on what you want to do. If you want to be more of a specialist or more of a generalist. I mean, I've been at places where they were like, hey, do you want some new experiences? Do you want to write some Node or do you want to write some more Ruby? And I was, that's just not what I'm interested in. You know, if I had to say specifically what I want to do, I want to stay more on like the traditional ops side of things. But that's not necessarily true for everyone. It's also kind of interesting, you were talking about people refusing to take jobs if it was something that they'd already done before. And I think that's a really interesting like generational thing because I know, you know, my parents worked in tech and what you did back then was you had one job and you just worked there until you retired. Whereas these days it's so unexpected that somebody would do that that, you know, there might be some sort of stigma against people working at one place for that long just because how much variety can you necessarily have? The staleness, yes. Well, you know, that's an interesting been at the same place for 20 years. It's definitely a prejudice that I think people well, would have. And that's yeah. a, I think that's an interesting point from the standpoint of are we, you know, people, I, I sort of hesitate to use this term, but are we all a little bit privileged from the standpoint of yep, cool. we're, in a, we're in a DevOps space and that's a really no, hot market? No, no, so. no, 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 no. Nope. I mean, maybe if you live in a place that doesn't have any jobs, we are privileged, but um, I live in Minneapolis and my first job was with a major corporation and then my second job was with a major corporation. So, no, we're not privileged because we're in a DevOps space. We're privileged because we uh, were able to think for ourselves and get out when we needed to. It's interesting, right, because this is something I struggled with for a long time, and in fact, it was something that, that you brought up, Sasha, and I disagreed with you about it for a long time, and I, I've i sort of come around, but I still, the thing I struggle with is the whole, you know, and Nathan Harvey has a great lightning talk on, like, everybody's hiring, mm-hmm. yeah, quit your job, you know, if, if you don't like your job, them and quit and blah 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 and it, the thing that I always struggle with is you know people have mortgages they have obligations and maybe the place where they are there's not a lot of technology jobs so they don't have a lot of mobility and so what I meant was are we 
right now the DevOps market is very, very like yeah, I mean, just search LinkedIn for jobs for that with that term in it. The that market is very hot, and a lot of companies actually are even starting to do remote work because they need the work so badly. They're like, you could work remotely. So the point is, it's is it when we talk about career growth, are we a little privileged? as a group of people in this space because we we kind of have it easy. Like, we have a lot of mobility from a company perspective. Well, I don't know that we're that privileged or it's that easy because if you go and look at all those job descriptions, it's still just as hard to find something that fits what you know because it's one thing to mm. go and do work that you haven't done before. It's another to try and enter a space that you don't know anything about. So I'm, if I were to say today, I want to be a software developer, somebody would probably hire me for that because I'm, you know, I'm known to be pretty smart, but they wouldn't pay me what I want. What I'm accustomed to, I guess, is really what I'm saying. If you go and look at all of those job descriptions, uh, it's still just as hard to find something that fits you. As and you cultural go. fit at a company is a big thing, too. I mean, sure, there's a billion DevOps jobs on LinkedIn right now, but you it's your what, you know, what your values are. Like, one thing I really like about working at Etsy is, like, their values align with mine, so I get this warm, fuzzy feeling when I go into work in the morning, whereas I could work for some, you know, startup that, you know, that is privileged. tech bros that just got billions of dollars in funding, but, you know, I'd feel... You know, not so great about how I fit into the culture, what it, what the company was doing necessarily. Yeah. Yep. Trying to find a space where you're happy and comfortable is just as hard, but it's also possible to do things incrementally. So, I mean, if you're really miserable, it's possible to be less miserable someplace else and learn some things. Sometimes that has to happen. Well, that's interesting, right? We, we talk about maybe that's something that, you know, a lot of these things I think we're kind of sort of referencing are our standard career growth things, but I, I think, you know, it is interesting to ask that question. Is career growth in the DevOps space any different? And, no. and, but, I think so actually, on a, so in wait, a way, wait, 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 so, wait, wait, DevOps so, has given everything a wait, shiny edge to it wait. that none of us ever used to have. So <laughs> here's the here's the thing: is that we just said you were talking about leaving a culture that's that's bad. And what's interesting about that is culture is such a part of the whole DevOps thing that that's actually something that we that you would even talk about as part of career growth. That that you would even pay. Yeah. I that you would we even pay attention to the culture. That's part of the DevOps stuff. Because well, what we're no. talking about doesn't really align with any of that, and I don't know that it can be aligned with career growth stuff. Well, to that point, I, I was actually writing down some notes, you know, when we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, Mike saying, well, learning all you can about lean and flow systems and that sort of thing, that has nothing to do, you know, if you're talking about pure DevOps stuff, all of the underpinnings of the stuff we talk about is actually related to that stuff. And I was thinking about, you know, I was, I was actually chatting with someone a few weeks ago, and uh, I was thinking to myself, like, communication skills, as stupid as this sounds, like, in pull requests and things like that, it was like, this person wasn't communicating. Like, I didn't understand what, I couldn't understand what they were saying. And, you know, the, the other thing that we often hear about is, like, being able to look at the bigger picture and what the business needs and that sort of thing. But neither of those, I think that's that's actually really important. And neither of those are really technical skills. But they're exactly what you're talking about. They, they play into sort of a DevOps sort of career That's true. Understanding bit. that our stuff wouldn't exist unless the business needed it is pretty key. Yeah. And um, that is a growing, that's the thing that a lot of people do need to grow into. And if that could be taught in a lot of classes, that would go a long way towards stuff. I mean, I think it does get taught in like project management classes. Not that I've ever had one, but I've heard. But yeah, understanding like that was a major growth moment for me when I went to somebody higher up on like the day before Thanksgiving and was like, why are you letting them do this thing? It's going to be horrible. The website's going to die. It'll be awful because they wanted, it was back in the days when we pushed content manually and stuff like that. And the guy was like, you know, senior director was like, because that's what we do. 
uh, we exist to make the business run and they need to be able to do this because it's Thanksgiving and we're retail. And it was a big growth moment for me. So if that could actually be taught without pain, that would certainly be. That is a, an extremely astute point, Sasha, I think, because I remember living my life, you know, being the release engineer in my 20s and thinking to myself, why does no one give a about any of the release engineering stuff that I'm talking about? And I realized the answer is because the company isn't selling release engineering. Right. The company's not selling quality per se. And a if you're selling times... a roadblock as part of your tech skill, that's that's a big problem. Yep. So that if that could be educated into people, that would that might be a big educational thing that we could look at. Yeah. Because a it's lot funny, of folks I mean, don't understand that still, that um, you can't bring roadblocks with your tech skills and think that it's going to fly. Yeah, well, it's funny, right? That is the whole point, you know, uh, again, back to Mike's point, like lean and flow systems, like the reason people started caring about this stuff is because after it got to a point where development was able to move fast enough, then, then it became obvious that not investing in operationalizing your code and, and basically making the ops staff better at their jobs in terms of allowing them to invest in their own infrastructure and own processes and stuff, where that, that became a business value. Whereas before, since the developers could only get their shit together to release something every couple months or three months or whatever, the fact that it took two weeks to, to deploy the site was such a small percentage of, of the overall release process that it was fine. But but it's interesting. Again, it's, it's all actually a business perspective thing. You know, another interesting sort of skill on the soft skill sort of thing is, is sort of the risk assessment and analysis. The whole like, yes, I know that I could clean up this code, but we have to do a release tomorrow, so maybe I should just not, should hold off on all those changes even though they're really interesting to me sort of stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Like where the the work that I'm doing is is in the bigger picture. Yeah, don't you know, make super big changes on uh, Cyber Monday when you're an online retailer. Exactly. Even though they might be good for uh, code hygiene or whatever. Sure, you know, I keep this change in it doesn't really it doesn't need to go through all of the process because it's just a typo change, right? And then all of right. a sudden, bang. <laughs> yep. Um, Catherine, I'm curious because you had mentioned you know Etsy uh, and uh, you recently uh, you recently started at, at Etsy, right? Yeah, just uh, just over three months ago. Yeah, so I'm curious. I'm I'm imagining. I mean, when they talk about growth, uh, yeah, career growth, and that sort of thing, is that something that that is sort of part of their culture and, and vibe that you have experienced in just even that short amount of time? Yeah, definitely. There's a whole ton of documentation about this, which I love because I've worked at you know smaller startups where they're just like, yeah, you know, hopefully we'll still have money in a couple of years, and we'll talk about career growth then. But um, <laughs> right. One thing that I really loved is that there's, in engineering, there's two very separate tracks for career development. One of them is, you know, moving towards engineering management, and one of them is just pure engineering, which mm -hmm. I, I'm so happy with because I started my career in uh, corporate America, and pretty much after a certain point, in order to keep being promoted, you had to go into management, and I never wanted to do that. So, like, since day one, I've been, you know, having one-on-ones with my manager, just figuring out, you know, what, what skills, both engineering skills and, like, soft skills, I will need to, to think about in order to get where I'm going. And it's all documented, which I like that. I like having checklists. Yeah, and it also makes it, I think, very clear uh, in, in a way that it's, it's hard to game that system. 
I mean, I think in a lot of organizations, it's sort of like it, it can be buddy buddy. None of it, none of it is written down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've I've certainly lived this at previous jobs where it's like if you knew, you know, if you were buddy buddy with your manager and you kind of it was very good old boy, you knew the right person and the right whatever, you would get the you know raise or the quote unquote career growth stuff that you wanted. But if you didn't, then it was easy to say, oh well, I just you didn't make it, you know, you didn't do well this year or whatever. And there wasn't any clear. It was all subjective. There was no objective checklist, like you were saying. Yeah, it's really nice to have that stuff. Like, how how big of a reach do you have? Do you reach out to just your team, or do your does your work affect other teams closer to yours? Do you you know contribute back to the the engineering community as a whole? Stuff like that, which is is really a good way of at least I think it's a good way of kind of gauging what your skills are as an engineer. Yeah, definitions yeah. are a good thing. Yeah. Well, so I wanted to ask a little bit, too, um, about what you all have seen companies that are good stewards of their employees in terms of career growth. What are the things that that they do for their uh, employees? I know one of them is a defined sort of sense around, like, what conferences and stuff they will pay for you to go to. I know some companies had, like, two conferences fully paid for every every year or something like that to make sure that, that you were keeping up to date and it was conference of their choice or whatever, or, or maybe one conference of their choice and one team conference that like, you know, half the team went to or something like that. That's an example I've seen. Are, are there others uh, that you see uh, organizations that aren't wanting to invest in their employees and think that's important things, perks that they're doing? Um, I really think that having a good training for managers and having managers that are really proactive about talking to their employees, having regular one-on-ones I think has been always really valuable for me in the times that I was most frustrated in jobs was when I, I didn't have that, when I didn't feel like there, there was somebody looking out for me. Um, mm-hmm. This also feels really true for me being a woman in engineering. I feel like I have to have somebody who's you know willing to go, for, go to bat for me at times just because otherwise I think it's easy for me to disappear and you know part of that is me being Midwestern and not liking to interrupt and you know draw attention to myself but it's really nice to have somebody who will proactively work with you instead of leaving you to do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. And also to make you feel like it's okay to have those feelings because yeah. as we know it's one thing for managers to say once X, Y, and Z is going to be like this but to, to be sure that people actually understand that that's actually how things should be that a lot of times that stuff needs to be reiterated over time. Well, so it's interesting. You were saying training for managers on how to do, do their jobs better is is important. That the company provides that. I mean, and I'm I'm just trying to clarify because because you know we're in an industry where a lot of people go from writing software with computers that react in predictable ways to managing people, and sometimes that is a very messy <laughs> sort of leap because those skills aren't. Necessary. They're not the same. Yeah, exactly. So you're saying it's important if a company has a lot of managers that maybe were sort of ex-techies that, that, that they provide the right training. Yeah, like a new manager so onboard yeah. program. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. here's the things that are going to be different. Here's potential pitfalls that you're going to run into that people who have already made that transition, either successfully or not, you know, pe- who can learn from the, the experiences of people who have done this previously so they're not just going in blind. Yes, definitely. It is... Interesting that uh, we were talking about sort of career growth in this particular episode because I, I was recently linked to uh, an article about uh, the Hotel 22 is, is what it's called. Uh, and it's actually this bus route that runs through Santa Clara County. It runs from um, San Jose up to Palo Alto and back. And I actually, when I lived in Mountain View, the, uh, I lived right along El Camino Real, which it goes up and down. And uh, the reason it's called the Hotel 22 is that the bus route is the 22, but it's it runs all night. 
and it is one of the longer running lines. And the article was talking about how a lot of uh, homeless people, because homeless is like a huge problem, uh, and it's it's sort of a hidden problem in Silicon Valley. Uh, homeless people ride the bus and and sleep there because it's better than sleeping out in the cold or if it's raining or whatever. It, it's it's a way to keep dry. And they were talking about basically it takes like three rides of the if you ride it the all the way up and all the way down. To, to have one night of being out of the elements, um, it, it takes about three rides. And so if you were talking about how much it costs, and somebody was saying if you buy a day pass at a certain time, you can get the whole night. But what was interesting to me about the article is basically they interviewed a couple people, and they were older tech workers that were out of work. And one of the things uh, that they said uh, was uh, one of the quotes I found really um, sad, actually, was that you know they said, you're really only one misstep away from being in this situation. And so I found that particularly interesting given what you said, Sasha. You said uh, earlier, you know, we don't really have full stack people, developers or ops engineers, unless you're like 50 and you you know these things, which I agree with. But there's this weird dichotomy between that statement and, and that, that skill set. Full stack both sides. Right, but that's what I'm saying is there's the interesting thing between that statement that people that are older and have been in the industry longer have a valuable skill set, and yet it almost seems that if you are still a developer or You don't or automatically a have that skill set because you're 50. You don't automatically get it at 50. Right, so my... It's not that's, a level up. So, that's, so then my question is, what are some of the things that we can do uh, as, as... We talked about companies as individuals to uh, to make sure that, you know, make, make it so that it, we don't kind of fall into that trap of being just one kind of company going belly up away from not being able to get another job. Well, the biggest problem I've seen at big companies is roadblocking people from changing their jobs. Mm. I mean, because people want to leave jobs all the time and do other stuff, and then they can't because they're too valuable or there's no space or there are eight other reasons why they can't leave the team that they're on. And so guess what? They're going to leave or they're going to stagnate. Right. So what about what, what um, I, I know one of the things uh, a mentor of mine always used to say is you should interview every couple of years no matter what. Yeah, Even you if should. you're planning on not leaving. It doesn't sound like fun to me either, and I probably wouldn't, but you, it doesn't hurt. I yeah. think interviewing is like, I don't know, on par well, with glass. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the nice thing about it is that when you do that, you're able to see, uh, to your point, Catherine, like where is the industry going in the next five years? If you're interviewing every two years, you are never surprised because yeah. you, those questions that you get asked in an interview inform what technologies yeah, exactly. They think are relevant. The other thing, and there's an article. I'll, I'll see if I can dig this up and link to it in the show notes. But there's an article talking about how if you actually don't switch jobs every two years, you are leaving some insane amount of salary on the table. It helps inform everyone what the market values of salary are because you can figure out by with what they uh, offer you. Yeah, that's sadly it seems like that's pretty true. I mean the. Most people that I've talked to said that the best raises that they've got by far have been by switching jobs. Oh yeah, definitely. But at least this totally, uh, you know, the the delta between reality and where you are doesn't become huge. So it's not a huge surprise. You know, you're not in a job for ten years and then realize we're all using Docker now and I have zero Docker skills. Maybe. Hopefully, like, that's. Guess the- what? Um, I'm sure that everybody in San Francisco loves Docker and possibly Seattle and. New York and maybe like Minneapolis and Chicago, but guess what? There are a lot of places that have a lot of tech that have not heard of Docker and that even if they have, aren't going to be using it anytime this decade. Sure, that's yeah. true. So, I mean, depending on where you interview, that's not going to be a question. No, it's, it's not a silver bullet, but I think it at least helps so that when you do 
eventually poke your head out of whatever company you're you you've been ensconced in for the last X years, whatever that is, the world is not totally surprising to you. Right. Um, I guess you, you have some a sense. better example would be like, what's your experience with AWS? Have you ever done any cloud launches? Uh, what do you do with multiple data centers right now? How do you, I can't think of anything that's enterprise app based because I don't work with that at all. All that's, kinds of apps out there that don't have anything to do with web-based technology either. And sure. that couldn't really run a container technology even well, if thought, you wanted to. I think like staying active in the community, like on Twitter, going to conferences really helps because, you know, at, at Etsy, we're not using Docker. We're not in the cloud. We're not doing any of that. But because I'm talking to people, I know that those things exist and that I might want to pay attention to them. Yeah. You know cloud is a thing. I've heard of it. <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, Sasha, I think that's a really good point, too, the whole bit about when you're interviewing, like, asking those general questions of the company is a good way to make sure you are you kind of keep a, a sense on your own career growth. Because if you can ask, like, how do you do deployments? And they say, oh, we use a tool, some weird tool you never heard of. Like, I mean, you know, that information not, may not be apparent, but at least that way you can you can uh, ask that way. And, of course, like you were saying, uh, Catherine, meetups, although to Sasha's point, a lot of times that's harder if you're not in one of those hubs, those hot tech hubs, you know. Sasha was talking about not stagnating. If you're on a team and you want to go chase a technology, you, you want to just explore just to see how you can make your team's life better or the development team that you're supporting's life better or something. Like, if you're at a company that says you can't do that or there's not enough time or do that in your off hours, you're at the wrong place. Like, you're at the should, wrong place. Yeah. So yeah, is we, everybody else who has a brain. You should never have to do things in your free time. I That used to make me really mad at my first job because all the guys that I worked with were all nerds, like super nerds, and they all had like giant surfer farms at home and shit. And I was like, f*** you. Yeah, yeah. There's so many people that I know that I work with now that are like, yeah, my, my monthly AWS bill is like thousands of dollars. I'm like, really? I have two kids in and school. And I've done that. I mean, like, I've done that. I've been nerdy and done programs. I work in the Boston-Cambridge area, and everyone's like, oh, my God, this is such a great startup area. Pete Cheslock just set up Coffee Ops, and it's now become Boston Coffee Ops or something. I don't know, whatever. If you're in some area and you have a Twitter account, like I'm sure you can find people in your general vicinity that have interest in what you're doing set up your own meetup. And it doesn't have to be this official thing where it's like there's alcohol involved or particularly, like, get a group of four or five together. Meet at a coffee shop. Pick 10 o'clock or something or, or in the morning or something or, or like 5.30 in the afternoon. Pick something that's reasonable and go meet the people, right? And there are ways to build your own community within the community you're in right now and you don't realize it. Like, yep, go go really for it. Yeah, and in fact, uh, Jennifer Davis does coffee ops in Santa Clara. Uh, so follow her on Twitter. Uh, we'll link in the show notes if you're in that area and want to do coffee ops. And she's always doing that. And that's the thing uh, that's nice about that. That's super easy to set up and do. It's like, I'm going to be at a coffee shop. Come come find me. But I, I think the biggest thing about all of this is, uh, and, and this is one of the reasons uh, that we wanted to talk about it now, was the whole, it's, the, it's kind of the time of year to be introspective. Uh, about things, you know, it's the end of the year, and I think one of the biggest things that 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 is hard for for everyone to do is to think about career growth. Even if you're having a great time, and you're rocking it, uh, you just got hired, uh, and and you're loving the culture or whatever, you still have to uh, sort of pay attention in the long term. And I think it's a, it's an easy trap for everyone to fall into when they're busy making sure the site is up. 
that they don't think about uh, what the world is going to be in the next five years and, and how to make sure that you're still sort of uh, relevant in that world. So uh, we'll open this discussion up to uh, our listeners. We would love to hear suggestions that you have for how you've shepherded your own career growth, what suggestions uh, either as managers working at places uh, that you've done or individual contributors working at places, how you make sure that uh, your own career continues on the path that you want. You can tweet us at ShipShowPodcast on the tweet sphere or uh, crew at the ShipShow.com, and uh, we will aggregate some of those responses and revisit the issue because it's certainly one that uh, is important. Uh, we'll be back in a moment here on the ShipShow. Welcome back to the ship show. So for our last segment tonight, we are doing a tool tip. Uh, you know, I, I, I speaking of uh, end segments, we didn't really get any uh, entries for our tech haiku contest. I was a little saddened by this. Didn't, didn't get any or didn't get many? Didn't get any. I did not see one. People were, I guess, totally thanksgiving out or something. Poetry's was, hard, man. Poetry's uh, hard. We, we were going to do a really good prize, too, and now n- nothing. No, no prizes for anyone. Anyway, tool tip. Uh, so our tool tip tonight is actually a site uh, that links to a bunch of different things, a site by Scott Muck, and I'm going to totally butcher this name, but uh, Subhas Dandapari? Dandapari? Anyway, the site is devopsbookmarks.com, and it's a cool little site that has stuff grouped, uh, and you can kind of add and subtract different kind of functional areas to look at, and then it just has bookmarks that you can sort of keep and tote around with you. Uh, they're separated by language, license, and topics. So, you know, and I, I played around with this a little bit. So some of the topics, source code management, continuous integration, delivery, packaging and artifacts, virtualization and containers, cloud and PaaS environments, configuration management, provisioning, orchestration, service discovery, process management, logging and monitoring, metrics and visualization, and security and hardening. And the one thing I didn't play with is, I guess, so you can do different areas, but then can you cross-check them by... Yeah, I'm just, I'm just clicking right now on Java and then... Topics yeah. Oh, you could do cool. right. You could do by language. So, yeah. oh, I get, I get it. So, if you like care about Erlang metrics on Windows, and if I do that, I get absolutely zero links. Uh, but theoretically, you would get. So, how about let's provisioning? Oh wait. Uh, we, oh, this is kind of fun. I can't believe there's no JVM virtualization slash containers. Dot net. Yeah. So dot net. Wait. Now this is actually kind of funny. Oh wait. Net metrics and visualization. Dot net on Windows. Uh, we get something. Since I got yelled at, EJ, because you said nobody uses .NET. Really? Matt, you, you found somebody? Matt Stratton yelled at me on Twitter. Oh. Well, you know, not everybody's yeah. happy about using it, but game companies use it, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, if you want to know about provisioning with .NET on Windows, you get Condep, whatever that is, an open source infrastructure configuration deployment tool. This is this reminds me a little bit about the O'Reilly site that is floating around. Has everyone seen this? Where it's like it, it doesn't have the sort of like cross-linking that this site does, but like if you clicked on provisioning, it would give you a list of tools to do that, or orchestration, a list of tools to do that. And yeah, uh, Paul, I, I think it would be worth throwing it in the show notes for any of the listeners. But yeah, yeah, we'll we'll definitely link to that. The other nice thing is, of course, this is hosted on the GitHub's uh, DevOps bookmarks, uh, github.com slash DevOps bookmarks, so you can, you can add a tool 
You can submit pull requests there to do stuff like that. So uh, check that out, devopsbookmarks.com. Upcoming conferences, there's only a couple. Of course, uh, since we are winding down for the season, um, wanted to mention LinUX. Uh, it's in New York. There's a whole DevOps track with lots of DevOps speakers. That's in April. Sorry. Oh, hey, I'm speaking at a conference in April. Oh, uh, what conference? Saturn. Oh, is that the software engineering conference? I spoke at Saturn <laughs> last year, but yeah, no, that's a good conference. Uh, it's it's very uh, software architecture heavy. You know, it's yeah, more it looks like conference. it's um. Well, they said it was pretty enterprise uh, yeah. apps and things like that. So anyway, they asked me to speak there, and I'm speaking there in April on continuous delivery and DevOps. Can you believe it? Wow, <laughs> that's buzzwordy. Yeah, <laughs> no, nice. I got right, a few we'll, more for you if you want. <laughs> well, we'll link we'll link to that in the show notes as well. And then, of course, uh, we got to mention ChefConf, uh, March thirty first through April second in Santa Clara. The so infamous and most wonderful of suburban jungles. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think well, I might try to go this year. Yes, yeah, I've heard it's very metal, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Catherine, are you coming? I'm going to try. It's pretty fun. I'm biased, of course, but it was fun before I was a member. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'd like to give a special thanks again to our uh, sponsor for this episode, Pager Duty. And from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From California, this is Mike McGar signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. From Massachusetts, this is EJ signing off. And from New York, this is Catherine signing off. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great. And we will see you all in a couple of weeks. 